your Bibles and turn to the fifth chapter of the book of Hebrews. And uh, I'm going to read for you what I think is one of the toughest texts to interpret in the entire New Testament. I want to remind you again of that uh, statement of George MacDonald's that we must think about the meaning of these texts. For if we do not think of the meaning of the New Testament, we, our lives are a failure. That sounds like an overstatement, but uh, it is not. These passages are intended to be understood. But uh, I can guarantee you within the next uh, 30 minutes, I will raise more questions in your mind than we can answer in the next uh, hour and a half. And I have 30 minutes to do so. So I will talk fast and you listen fast. And uh, we'll see what, uh, what we can learn. I'm going to begin reading with, with verse 11 of chapter 5. We have much to say about this, that is about this wonderful old king priest from Salem, Melchizedek. But it is hard to explain because you're slow to learn. These uh, folks apparently had a learning disability of some sort. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. The word that's translated elementary truths here is really a, a word that means the ABCs, the first principles, the basics, foundational things. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. He's equating milk with these elementary ideas. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. That is how God intends to make men and women righteous, fully righteous. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ, that is, about the Messiah, And go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. For it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and produces a crop useful for those uh, to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed in the end it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things, in your case, things that accompany salvation. Now, we we must keep reminding ourselves of the people to whom this letter was addressed. These were Jewish Christians. These were Jews that, as we would say today, had converted to Christianity. They had joined a body of of Christian believers. They were members of a church. And they were under persecution. The, The heat was getting very intense. Things were getting very difficult. 
for them. Their neighbors, their friends, their business associates, their fellow students were um, ostracizing them, treating them badly, defaming the name of Christ. And uh, they were wondering if it really was worth it to continue on with him. They were doing what Scripture tells us to do. They were counting the cost. And they were wondering if it costs too much to uh, be Christians. And they were thinking about going back into Judaism. And what the author wants them to know is that they should go on. They should move on from the elementary things of their Old Testament faith. And he wants to take them on. He wants to tell them about uh, this wonderful old priest who's depicted in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, who is a type of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, and he wants to take them on to these uh, these more profound things, but he can't because they're stuck in the elementary things. They're th- still thinking in terms of the ABCs, the basics, the fundamentals. And my son, uh, Brian, our number two son, came uh, bouncing into our house one day. He was always a very optimistic fellow, always on an endorphin high. And uh, he bounced in one day and he said to his mother, Mother, I have learned how to snap and whistle. Now all I have to do is learn how to tie. What he meant is he'd learn how to snap his fingers and he'd learn how to whistle. Now all he needed to learn to make his way through life was to learn how to tie shoes. Learn how to snap and whistle. All I have to do now is learn how to tie. Now, that's uh, funny when you're three or four years old. But if you were 24 and you thought that life consisted of snap, whistling, and tying, and you were stuck there, then that would be a sign of immaturity. And that's what this writer is saying. You need to go on. Now, some of you are going to disagree with this statement, but uh, that's okay. You're you're permitted to disagree with me here. But I think the elementary things of which he speaks here are the basic fundamental teachings in the Old Testament about Messiah. Because all of the, the things that are said of these first things are true of Old Testament truths. For example, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, He lists for us the elementary teachings about Messiah. Now understand, when the word Christ occurs in the New Testament, it's a transliteration, an anglicized form of the Greek word Christos that means anointed one, which is the counterpart of the Old Testament, Mashiach, anointed one, Messiah, so that Christ is equivalent to Messiah. Jesus is our Lord's personal name. Christ is his title. So when the writer says these are the elementary things about Christ, he could very well be looking at Christ from the Old Testament standpoint. He could be referring to the Messiah. And the things of which he speaks here are all things that could be true of one living in the Old Testament era, living out of an Old Testament faith, looking forward toward the coming of of Christ. Repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God are one of the fundamentals of the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament as well, but it's certainly those facts are found embedded in the Old Testament. The message of the prophets over and over again was repent. Repent. Shuv was the word. Turn around. Turn around. As Walt Kaiser says, the prophets were always giving them a shuv in the right direction. 
Repentance has nothing to do with the way we feel about anything. It's not a function of our emotions. It's a matter of our mind. It's, it's a matter of changing our mind about the direction we're going and moving in another direction. That's an Old Testament principle. Instead of idolatry and the other deeds that led to death, the prophet said, change your mind and put your faith in the living God. Now, faith is not a New Testament concept. That's an idea that's found all through the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, when the New Testament writers want to argue for faith, they go back to the Old Testament for examples. Abraham is exhibit A of faith. And when our writer here, the author of the book of Hebrews, uh, wants to encourage his readers on to, to faith, and he tells them that it's by faith that we please God, he uh, gives them a list of Old Testament men and women who operated out of faith. So faith is found in the Old Testament. This is an Old Testament, elementary truth. Foundational, fundamental, ABC, fact. And we have to change our mind about the way we're going and we have to follow hard after the living God. It's also true of baptisms. This word is translated baptisms here in Hebrew is never used in the New Testament. Never for Christian baptism. Another word entirely. This is the word, in fact, that's used in the New Testament for Old Testament washings and ablutions, you know, the washings of pots and pans, the sprinkling of bodies and the sprinkling of the elements within the temple to cleanse them, the symbolic washing of the Old Testament. The laying on of hands is the means by which blessings were conferred. That's an Old Testament notion. The resurrection of the dead is an idea that's found in the Old Testament. That's not a New Testament revelation. Isaiah speaks of a revelation, Daniel, or of a resurrection. Daniel speaks of a, of a resurrection. The psalmist in Psalm 72 says, God has taken me by the hand and he's leading me through life and afterward he'll take me into glory. Same word that's used of Enoch. He walked with God and then God took him. It was that doctrine that distinguished the Pharisees from the Sadducees, as you know, in, in the New Testament era. But, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were living out of the Old Testament. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not, which, is some, as someone has said, is why they were sad, you see. And the same is true of judgment. The prophets thundered judgment. Our God is a consuming fire. That's a truth that's found in, in the Old Testament. He's a holy God. It has to be reckoned with. So these are all Old Testament ideas, and I think that's where these people were stuck. They were reading the Old Testament, but they weren't reading it with discernment. They couldn't distinguish truth from error. They, they were babies. They had to be spoon-fed. That's always true of babies. You, know, you put a baby in a high chair and put a bib on them, and hand them a spoon, you know, and they stick the spoon in their ear and their eye and dump it on their head can't feed themselves. That's the problem. Is you're not thinking about the meaning of these Old Testament ideas. You're not pondering them. You're not thinking about what they mean in terms of the coming Messiah. And that's why you're, you're not making any progress. You're pilgrims who are not making progress. We have to go back and talk about the childish baby things again. So he urges them to go on. Let's get on with it. Let's start growing. Let's stop this baby stuff. Let's, let's go talk about Melchizedek. Let's talk about this wonderful picture of our great high priest and the relationship that he has to us. Let's go on to maturity. And this we will do, he says, if God permits. Now that raises an enormous question. In what sense does God do not, uh, does, 
in what sense does God not permit some to go on? I would think that God would permit anyone to go on. But apparently there's one class of people who cannot go on. And he distinguishes, now pay real close attention, he distinguishes this group from those to whom he is writing this letter. The pronouns indicate that they're an entirely different class. He uses the pronouns you and we when he refers to the people to whom this letter is addressed. When he turns to speak to the, about this other group, he uses the, the pronoun those, those. It's a group outside. It's not those to whom he's, he's addressing this letter. He, he says later in, in verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case. You're not like this group. What can we say about those who cannot repent, whom God will not permit to, uh, to go on. Well, they're described for us here in, in verses 6, uh, in chapter 6, verses 4 and following. Our writer says it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened to go on if they go back. And what he's talking about is that event in their life when their eyes were suddenly opened and they realized who Jesus was. Paul is perhaps the most graphic, dramatic example of that enlightenment. He was on his way to Damascus, as you know, with letters, giving him permission to put Christians and Jewish Christians in jail. Because he was fully convinced that Jesus was a demon, or he was demented, or worse. And uh, all those that followed Jesus were heretics, and so he was going to cast them in, into prison. And then he saw the risen Lord, and his eyes were open. And later in 2 Corinthians 4, in describing that event, he said, The God who once said, Let there be light, said, Let there be light. And my eyes were open, and I saw the light of the gospel of the grace of God in the face of Christ. Everything fell into place for Paul. He realized that Jesus was the Messiah, and he fell on his knees, and he, and he worshipped him. He was enlightened. In other words, he saw the light. He clearly saw who Jesus was. So these people who are on the outside, have seen who Jesus is. They're not in doubt anymore. They're not confused. Now, some of you are unsure at this point who Jesus is. You're, you're sort of on the way, and your eyes aren't quite open yet. But these people have seen. I've had the experience, and I'm sure some of you had, of talking to someone about, about the Lord Jesus and sharing the gospel with them and talking about Christ. And you just see the light go on. Their eyes light up, and suddenly they realize who he is. Well, now that's what he's talking about here. They clearly saw that Jesus was the Messiah. Secondly, they've tasted of the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift is, uh, is Christ, the one that God gave from heaven. They've tasted in the sense that they experienced him. They imbibed him. They, to some degree, took him in. They became aware of who he was. They responded in some way to, to this gift that, that God had given to them. They have shared in the Holy Spirit, that is, they have gone along with the Holy Spirit in his convincing work. Jesus said, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin that they do not believe on me. You see, that's the fundamental sin for which God holds us responsible. It's not our individual sins that 
that keep us from God. Those have been paid for. Christ died for our sins, all sins, past, present, and future. Every sin that's ever been committed on the face of the earth by any person has been paid for by Christ. They've been atoned for. So the problem today is not sins. It's the one sin of refusal to accept the solution which God has given to our sins. That's Jesus. And the Holy Spirit convinces men and women of that one sin of unbelief. These people had gone along with the Holy Spirit in that convicting work. They clearly saw that Jesus was the solution to their, to their sin. They had tasted the goodness of the Word of God. By this time... Most of the letters in the, in the New Testament were written. This book was written sometime between 65 and 70 A.D. And uh, all the books, except uh, some of the books that were written much later by the Apostle John, were already in circulation. They had the Old Testament. They tasted the good things of God's Word, both in terms of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Perhaps some of these people had even heard the Lord speaking. They would be older now, 30 to 40 years later, but they might have heard the Lord teaching. Many of them had heard the apostles. They had heard the next generation of teachers expound the word, so they had tasted the good things of, of the word of God. And they had tasted the powers of the coming age. In those days, Jews divided uh, history into two eras. There is the present age and the coming age. The present age was the age in which they lived. The coming age is the Messianic era. The Old Testament predicted that when the Messiah came, there would be signs and wonders and miracles and powers that would manifest the, the presence of the Messiah. The blind would be healed. The lame would leap. The deaf would, would hear. These were all the powers that indicated the coming age. Remember earlier, in chapter 2, our writer tells, you, tells us that, uh, that the word was confirmed by signs and miracles and, and wonders. Those are the powers that indicated the, the presence of the coming age. These people had experienced all of these things, and yet they had fallen away. They had been enlightened. God had shined his, shown, his, God shown his light into their, into their minds so that they clearly saw who Jesus was. They had tasted the goodness of Christ. They had gone along with the Spirit in his convincing ministry that Jesus was the solution to their sin. They had tasted the Word of God as it was expounded by the apostles. They had seen the miracles that corroborated the witness of the apostles. And yet our passage tells us that they have fallen alongside. Literally, they went back. They fell out of ranks. They left the church and they went back. And they went back to Judaism. And the question is, why can't they go on? Because if they went back to Judaism, they could no longer be neutral about Christ. You see, Judaism was the way until Jesus came. The Old Testament, the oracles of God, the revelation that came from God was given to the Jews. Moses, David, the other prophets. That's what Paul says. The oracles of God came through the Jews. The priesthood came through the Jews. The sacrificial system, all of that came through the Jews. Prior to Jesus coming, the only way you could come to God was through this system. But in a moment of time, when Jesus came, shadow became substance. And once people clearly saw that Jesus was the the embodiment of everything that the Old Testament predicted, they had to make up their mind about Jesus. So they couldn't be neutral any longer. 
They, they couldn't say, well, Jesus is just a, just a good man. He's just a good teacher because he went, he went too far. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the one that was predicted in the Old Testament. As C.S. Lewis says, the leaves of the Old Testament rustle with a rumor of hope. That one of these days, the one desired of women, the Son of Man, the Prince of Peace, would come. Jesus came and he said, I am he. Uh, the woman at the well questioned Jesus about uh, his credentials. And uh, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's a clear, unequivocal statement of, of his Messiahship. He described himself as the son of man. That's not too significant to us because we're not Jews, but uh, the Jews understood exactly what he was saying. The book of Daniel predicted, or the book of Daniel described the a heavenly scene in which the son of man, as he is described, comes and takes a seat beside the ancient of days who is God the Father. And uh, in the intertestamental period, the period between the Old and New Testament, this idea that Messiah was the Son of Man was clearly taught. So that when Jesus came and said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost, every Jew who heard him say that realized how audacious that claim was. He just sort of throws it over his shoulder. But what he's saying is, I'm the one that's predicted, the one who's referred to by the prophet Daniel. He claimed too much. You couldn't go back and be a Jew and just say, well, Jesus is just a good man, particularly when you'd, your eyes had been opened and you saw clearly who he was. In fact, you had to take your place with those who considered him either demented or a demon. That was the choice that people were forced to who were in the old system of worship, if they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they either had to conclude that he was insane, and he was so clearly sane, he couldn't be insane, so they said he has a demon. He's demon-possessed. And that's what Jesus said was the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The unpardonable sin is not any particular sin. In terms of disobedience to the will of God, such as adultery or, or, or fornication or those sorts of sins, the, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin is the sin of attributing to Jesus the work of demons, saying he's demon-possessed. It's resisting the witness of the Spirit of God to the person of, of Jesus. And uh, the Jews of this day who rejected Jesus as Messiah had come to the conclusion that he was cursed. That's why they put him on a tree. Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So they hung him on a tree to show that he was cursed of God. By the way, Isaiah had predicted 500, 800 years before that they would say of their Messiah he was cursed of God. And that's the conclusion to which... They came, and that's why if you, in this era, had become a Christian in the sense that you saw that Jesus was the Messiah and you had aligned yourself with the Christian church for a period of time, then you went back into Judaism, you had to go back with your eyes wide open. You had to take your place at the foot of the cross with those who cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And what they were doing was apostatizing. They were shaking their fists in the face of God, and they were saying, we, we will have not have any king. We will have no king but, but Caesar. We will not have this man rule over us, you see. 
Now the question, who are these people? I mean, are these Christians who have turned their back on God? Or are they something else? Let me show you two passages. One is in the book of 1 Peter. I'm sorry, 2 Peter. In chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 20. Peter is describing a class of people that have turned their back on God. I think he's speaking of the same group. In verse 20, he says, If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred commandment that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to his vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. These people are described as those who know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Know him in the sense that they've been enlightened. They understand clearly who he is. They have tasted the good things of the word of God. They have gone along with the Spirit in his persistent witness that this is the only solution to sin. And then they have turned their back on him and they have walked away. Why? Because their nature was never changed. See, a dog goes back to its vomit and a, and a hog goes back to wallowing in, in the mud because hogs are hogs and dogs are dogs. And he's not saying these people are like hogs or dogs, only in the sense that they're like these animals in that their nature has never been changed. They are not participants in the new nature. They do not bear the nature of Christ. They may look very good. They may have been involved in the ministry of these local churches to whom he writes, but their nature has never been changed because they have never submitted to the Lordship of Christ. I'll show you another verse, First John 2, verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. The last hour, as we have said before, is the inner advent period, that is the period between the first and second comings of Christ. We're living in the last hour. This is the last hour. The world is uh, getting old And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Those that oppose the Messiah. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us. They were members of our church. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us... They would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. What is he saying? If you go out, you simply manifest the fact that you never belonged to the body of Christ. But conversely, if you belong to the body of Christ, you will never go out. He will see to it. Paul puts it very plainly in Romans 8 when he talks about the purpose which God has for those that he's called to himself he says those whom he has foreknown and by the way it's not that he knows what we're going to do the word for knowledge there is the word for knowing someone intimately very 
very personally, those whom he knew before is the idea. Those whom he sustained a loving relationship to. He called. Those whom he called, he justified. Anyone get lost in the process? Those whom he justified, he glorified. Anybody fall out? Anybody get lost in the process? Jesus said, uh, My sheep are my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. The Father who gives them to me holds them in his hand, and they shall never perish. We can't even jump out of his hand. If we belong to him, we belong to him forever. If we can turn our back on him and defy him and shake our fist in his face and take our our place at the foot of the cross with those that said crucify him, then it's simply an indication that we never belong to him. In John 17, our Lord prayed for us that God would preserve us and keep us to the end, and his prayers are always answered. Peter says in his little epistle in chapter 1, verse 5, we are guarded through faith unto a salvation ready to be, to be revealed. Uh, Peter always uh, speaks of salvation in his book in terms of ultimate salvation, heaven. Peter says we're guarded through faith until we get to heaven. We say we're saved by faith, but suppose I lose my faith. You can't. You can't. Not if you belong to him. He'll guard your faith. He'll protect it. He'll keep it until you get to the end. If you belong to him, you can't step out of line. If you step out of line, it simply means you never belong to him. All this text in Hebrews tells me is, uh, it gives us an indication how far one can go and never acknowledge the lordship of Christ. You can be enlightened, you can know clearly what the issues are. You can go along with the Spirit in his convincing ministry. You can love the word of God even. Taste its goodness. You can even do miracles. And uh, and yet, your heart's never been changed. You're never submitted to the Lordship of Christ. If you don't believe that, turn to Matthew 7. Sorry to keep uh, having you turn back and forth. This is not a sword drill. But... Uh, As they say, if they persecute you in one text, flee into another. This is our Lord speaking, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What does he mean? The only people who have the right to call Jesus Lord are those who have submitted to his lordship. It doesn't mean we always perfectly do it. Doesn't mean we're always obedient. Doesn't mean that we don't struggle or argue or get angry at God because He has asked us to do certain things or quibble with Him. We sometimes will do that. But the point is, the issue is settled in our life. We really want to do the will of God. And when a person makes Him Lord in that sense, when He becomes the authority in His life, ultimately and finally, then He is regenerated or she is regenerated. Which means we have a new life, an eternal life that goes on forever. But Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The only ones are those who have made that step of commitment. They are willing to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. They take a blank sheet of paper and sign their name at the bottom, and they give it to him, and they say, you fill in the provisions. 
We may not know what the implications of that lordship mean, but we're willing to make him Lord. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and, and the day here, by the way, is the day of judgment. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many, many miracles and teach Sunday school classes and sit on official boards of churches and share our faith? And uh, I will tell them plainly, listen to this, I... What's the word? Never knew you. Not I knew you once and you defected, but I never knew you. So I just want to say again, if you belong to him, he knows you. And he'll see to it that your faith is preserved to the end. If you don't belong to him, and you never belong to him. You may look good. You may do all the things that Christians do. And at the end of, of life, all of us are going to stand before the Lord. And I can't imagine any worse thing than to hear our Lord say, I never knew you. But I just want to say again, because for me this is uh, such a comforting hope, such a wonderful fact. If you belong to him, he'll guard you to the end. I want to close with uh, these words from Samuel Rutherford, wonderful old uh, Scottish uh, minister who actually was banished from his church and eventually thrown in jail because he taught what I've been teaching. He wrote from his prison, We are anchor fast and made stable in God. So that if God does not change, which is impossible, then my hope shall not fluctuate. O oh, God, be thanked that our salvation is coasted and landed and shored upon Christ, who is the master of winds and storms. Let's pray. It's inevitable that in a congregation like this there would be people who are very close very close. They have been enlightened. They understand exactly what the issue is. They know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away their sins. The Spirit is witnessing in their heart of that one sin of unbelief. They've tasted something of, of the goodness of God. I would just encourage you to to make that final step, which is to submit to his lordship, to say, Lord, Lord, I will, I will do your will. I will submit to your authority, your, your leadership, and become one of his sheep who follow him. Will you do that this morning? Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for providing the way. I want to follow you no matter what it will cost. I'm willing to do that as you provide the strength to do so. And then as our writer uh, tells us, he's persuaded of good things, better things for those of us that have made that commitment. And we want to go on and grow. Let's ask the Lord to open our eyes to see the truth and continue to mature and comprehend and appropriate everything that he has for us as we continue these studies. Lord, we thank you for that 
that final seal that you've placed upon us, the Holy Spirit, who is the mark of your ownership, is the final symbol of the fact that we belong to you. And as you see us, Lord, you do not see our sin, you do not see our imperfection, our failures, but you see your Holy Spirit who indwells us, who is that final mark of our belonging. Thank you for that assuring fact. And may we go from that firm foundation to serve you, knowing that we are secure to the end. We ask these things, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.